Good evening, Rifters. This is Rifts and Rules, the 5e D&D podcast, where we go through the many 5e books and talk about various rules and haunted gameplay experience. I'm Nathan, the Dungeon Master of Riftwake. And I'm Remy, a player on Riftwake and a Dungeon Master myself. And today we're here to talk to you about flying! Whoosh. Anyway, flying is something that has intrigued humanity from time immemorial. As soon as humans realized basically that sky was a thing that existed and birds were a creature that they could see, humans have wanted to fly. In D&D, however, you can. A lot, actually. There are a lot of possible ways to fly. It is actually incredibly varied, the options that exist to allow a character to do so. And what's interesting is that there's actually quite a significant amount of variety as well in how to do so to the point where flying actually potentially can become viable both for combat utility as well as just for the sake of travel and exactly how much you want to incorporate aspects to allow both of those two sides is of course something that individuals as a dm can decide for themselves so nathan what do you think would be some of the advantages to a character being capable of flight okay so being able to fly is actually surprisingly useful um so one of the major things is if there's a gap no need to worry let's just fly over it if there's a giant portal in the sky no need to worry <laughs> just fly into it if there's a giant yeah. monster below you it's below you you can fly over it so just for clarification's sake by gap you mean just like a canyon or a crevice or some such because the rickety yeah. bridge is such a classic trope of D&D one of the downsides of flight is that having particularly easily accessible flight would prevent that from being something to use in your DM toolbox if you know it's very easy to fly because well if everybody is able to fly then you're Wait, not going to be able to use the rickety bridge hmm. oh no the air around the rickety bridge has been enchanted with anti-fly spells we must walk over the bridge oh no yeah and that's the way you deal with something like that like we talked about in the anti-magic episode there are ways to have a large area of anti-magic so that would be the way to get around that but if you just had you know the rickety bridge oh okay i can just you know cast fly as a ninth level spell slot and all of us can just avoid fucking everything avoid any pressure sensitive traps avoid the rickety bridge so from the dm side that's the downside of easy flight is that there's a lot of ground-based shit in the world and if your player is just like nah i don't wanna i go over it well that's kind of unfortunate because that does take a lot of arrows out of your quiver there are ways like we just said with anti-magic to get around some of that stuff and in you know a particularly well-built dungeon that totally fits but don't just say fuck you players and just put the anti-magic everywhere if they do have it because again DD is a game of balance for everyone to have fun so your dm reaction should never just be fuck you no yes and should always be your first instinct anyway uh sorry that was related but a bit tangential so there are like i said a lot of potential ways to fly the easiest one of which be an aracocra big bird person if you are a bird person you can fly it's not a spell it's just you have wings so you can fly 
you have it at level one because you just are a bird person. So that's the easiest way. The downside being Arakokra are, generally speaking, pretty freaking rare in D&D. They are just very much a less common used race. So it is definitely one that you would have to check with your DM if they even exist in your world, first of all, and if they're allowable as a player character race. Because like I talked about in that rant just a moment ago, you can avoid a lot of shit, especially at low levels, if you can just fly from level one. So if you had a party of Arakokras, I mean, that could definitely just end up having a DM just tear pages out of their notebook in frustration. Anyway, uh, besides that, there are a number of spells that give access to the ability to fly with varying amounts of usefulness. So the first one that kind of works that way would be the spell Levitate. Second level spell available to sorcerers, wizards, artificers, so quite a lot of people might potentially have that spell. However, what's kind of fun about that one in particular is that it does not give you controlled flight. It lets you go up and stay up, which is the most important part of flight, because if you simply go up and crash, that's not flying. That's not flying. That is a fall, and that's bad. But levitate lets you move up and stay up. However, you can move horizontally by pushing or pulling against something else which allows you to move as if you're climbing, so half speed generally. So what is kind of funny about that, that does mean that if you had enough people in a party to cast Levitate, you could basically have there be like one land-based person with just like a long rope of player balloons just kind of getting pulled along by just holding on to a rope. And oddly enough, that's not something I've seen often because to be fair, Levitate is a concentration spell. So you can't really do that unless you have a lot of magic users in the party or if you have spell scrolls or something like that to allow more casting of it. Anyway, uh, but after the balloon party line, we get to the most classic method to fly. The spell fly, aptly named. And that one, though, for concentration for up to 10 minutes, you touch a willing creature, which gains a fly speed of 60 feet for the duration. But when the spell ends, the target falls if it's still aloft, unless it can stop the fall. What's also neat about this one, when you cast it at a higher level spell slot, instead of going faster or lasting longer, you can target an additional creature for each slot level above third. So normally third level, fourth level lets you cast it on two people at once, and so on and so forth. So fly can grant an entire party the ability to fly at a higher level. Because again, if you cast it, you know, higher level, more people, easy. And it's just one concentration person to do so. Now, also nice about that, because they gain a fly speed of 60 feet, that would mean then that the entire party is probably around double the usual movement speed, given that 30 feet is the average walking speed. So, you know, humans will have that, tieflings will have that, and yes, there are exceptions with, you know, gnomes and dwarves being slower, elves being faster potentially, but average is 30. So, because fly gives you that 60 feet, that is a huge speed boost. So, many, many creatures cannot move 60 feet. And this is where also the usefulness for players 
frustration for DM comes back into play. Because if a character is able to fly faster than things that are chasing them, then that gives the party the ability to avoid a huge amount of encounters flat out. Because even something like a wolf, which is a very fast animal, has a movement speed of 50 feet. And that's even disregarding the whole, I am above you, you can't reach me, na 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 na. So the ability to fly and fly at speed, granted by this third level spell, and uh, granting more people the ability to do so, is something that really is worth consideration from a DM. Because given that it is just a third level spell, that then means that a fifth level magic user will have access to it since it is every other level that you get, you know, higher level spells. So fifth level, sorcerers, warlocks, wizards, artificer, well, not artificer because they're a half caster. Anyway, so most spellcasters can fly at fifth level. And that is really something to think about, because at that level, you may well still be dealing with, you know, the chasm that the party needs to cross or the rickety bridge or just many, many plate, you know, pressure plates and traps. Fifth level, while still being actually a pretty common level for a D&D 5th edition game to be played, is still a relatively low character level in the big picture. So having Fly be so accessible changes a lot of how things should be designed encounter-wise, because one of the massive advantages to flight is range. And we're going to talk a lot more about the effects of range and combat in Thursday's episode. But the short version, if you have some ability to attack from farther away than they can attack you, you win flat out. Even if you're only able to do one damage per round, but if they can do nothing to you and they can't get away from you, you win, period. It is an insane advantage to be no longer groundbound because most things in the game are groundbound. Yes, there is a lot of accessible magic to fly, and there are a lot of creatures also that can fly. But for the most part, a large percentage of everything in a D&D game is groundbound. So the fact that as soon as fifth level, you suddenly have that third dimension added to the game is absolutely something that dungeon masters need to consider in their dungeon layouts, in their encounter tables, because you definitely should think, okay, if I am in a mountainous area, you usually think of like the kind of burrowing, tunneling creatures as being a danger to you. But you should also think in that third dimension, because there are many flying dangers as well. So you need to consider having something like, you know, giant eagle nest on the mountaintop as well, that may be less than pleased that, you know, the party is encroaching on their territory. Or maybe, you know, there's a game that the eagles like that the party decided to, you know, go hunting for and, you know, the giant eagles are just after the easy meal. Or one of my favorite monsters, honestly. Nathan, do you know what a rock is? R-O-C? Uh, no. Is it anything like a rock? It is not the hard stone thing that you may pick up on the ground, no. So the rock is a bird from mythology that in most of the art depictions that I've seen of it, show it carrying off an elephant to eat. So it is an absolutely massive bird. 
And they pretty much just straight copy pasted it for the sake of D&D, which is interesting because there are a lot of mythological creatures that D&D took massive liberties with in terms of like changing what abilities they have, changing what they look like, all that kind of stuff. The rock historic or sorry mythologically speaking was so dangerous a creature that even dungeons and dragons decided no that's actually good as it is it is it is a bird that eats fucking elephants so in D, there is actually two separate stat blocks that i know of there's the rock and then there's the young rock the young rock has an 80 foot wingspan eight zero the adult rock has a 200 foot wingspan this is a bird big enough to blot out the sun over a small town and it is a creature that i am amazed is not used more in dungeons and dragons because it is a creature so large that the party wouldn't even be a snack to this thing. But if you have like a party on horseback or a party, you know, riding griffins or riding giant eagles, then if your campaign is at a level where like they might be on flying mounts, a rock is awesome. And I really just would like to see them used more because they're fucking cool. Anyway, yeah, uh, tangent on my love really, rocks. Really cool. Right? Like, you should, seriously, I'll show you some pictures later, but just a bird big enough to carry off an elephant. So imagine, just imagine how how much of a, what the fuck was that reaction you'd get from a party if you just had, like, a low-level game going, and then you just have a rock sweep down and just grab two of the horses that the party just, like, had grazing to the side. Just the what the fuck from the party would be glorious. <laughs> like, like- I'm imagining, I'm imagining it like a comic panel of just like like you have the party hanging out, and then in the background you just see this small bird appear, and you're like, okay, that's cool. Then the bird, oh, you know, that's a pretty bird. I don't know what that is. And then it just yeah, gets yeah. bigger. And then it's like and you get the perspective wrong, and then it just sees. Uh-huh. Wait a second, it's it's a lot closer than it appears to be, and it's just like <laughs> grabs the freaking horses and flies away. And it's like, oh. And that would just be a good way, honestly, to to introduce there is dangerous shit in the world. And you could even have it known, like much like how so many maps would have the here be dragons. Again, rock would be a fantastic thing to also have known locations. So you just are supposed to know as an adventurer that this is one of those things you're not ready for yet. One day, maybe you can try to invade the rock nest, but... It is such an enormous creature that it just would be so much fun. Anyway, sorry, that was a lot of tangent just on the rock, but they're so cool. All right, next up, spell-wise, we have Gaseous Form. So this is another one that just lets you get a fly speed. However, like it says, you just turn into a cloud for all intents and purposes. So you can't attack anymore. You only have a fly speed of 10 feet, which is not great. However, because you're a cloud, you can squeeze through tiny spaces so this is like that like kind of classic vampire movie turn into mist and then they crawl you know under the door and then reform themselves like there's a lot that you can do kind of creatively with it it is actually less useful in terms of travel because it's really slow 
But the whole idea of the mobility aspect of it, of being able to get into places that you would normally not be able to, is really fucking cool. And it actually I, I just is realized something. Basic. Yes. Imagine you just have, you know, that traditional shot of, okay, someone's having a shower and there's mist and it's like tasteful mist. And then you're like, oh, okay, I oh, guess no. this is the part. And then a mist <laughs> starts to change in the person. You're like, shit, oh shit. Oh, oh no, oh, that's bad. bad. Uh, I mean, kind of bright side, at least it does specify in the spell that the target can't talk or manipulate objects. So thankfully, question mark, while it could be used for the sake of peeping, it could not be used for the sake of molestation. So that's silver lining, question mark. At least it can't be that. It's a very, Uh, very question question mark. Yeah. I mean, especially if you consider that it does last for concentration up to an hour. So, oh, that's so significant. yeah, so magic is I, bad. Yeah. yeah, so I sincerely <laughs> hope that any like wizard academies in your world would be uh, warded against that. Or if like the showers have like an anti magic over that area. Otherwise, there's no doubt that there'd be a lot of perverted wizard candidates doing immoral things. Yeah, like immoral in the sh- like, sorry, anti magic in the showers would be almost necessary at a wizard school because then you, it couldn't be scried into. You couldn't be invisible. It would prevent gaseous form. Yeah, I, I think I need to actually write that down for my own sake. All wizard school showers and dorms would probably need to have anti-magic. Seems kind of dangerous. <laughs> <sighs> oh, magic magic leaves too many wizards. options on the wall. Like, seriously. I mean, it is such a powerful, flexible force. That isn't that so like that's basically magic, misused. isn't it? It's it's, yeah. it's it's basically the ability to do things without other people uh, letting you, uh, n- like basically doing things that other people don't let you do. Is things that go beyond what can be physically stopped. It's just like, well, geez, um, I mean, that's kind of the point of magic, but it makes it really easy to do horrible, horrible things. Yeah. Ugh. All right. Anyway, next up, uh, Investiture of Wind. So this is a less commonly known spell because it's from the Elemental Evil Player's Companion, which not all people know exist, let alone use. But it is a legal spell. And that one also will give you a 60 foot fly speed for concentration up to 10 minutes. But this is a six level spell. So it also gives you quite a lot of other effects. It gives all ranged weapon attacks against you disadvantage, which could be seriously advantageous. Especially like if you're high up, they have to attack at range. So any ranged weapon attack then would have that disadvantage. So useful. Uh, but even besides that, you could use an action to basically make a big cube of wind to do bludgeoning damage to people to just throw them around with wind. So it's a cool spell. Uh, now the final spell I'll mention for today: Windwalk. This is another one of those absolutely crazy powerful spells that exists that I also almost never actually see used. This one is not a combat spell, and in fact is pretty much impossible to use in combat. It is a druid-only spell, first of all, which massively limits it in the first place, because druids, not the most common class. Getting a druid up to, what would that be, 11th level to be able to cast a 6th level spell? Not a whole lot of those in the world. However, what this thing does, first off, to cast the damn thing, 
takes a full minute. So most of the spells I mentioned earlier, one action. This one, a minute. So 10 rounds of combat, so not really combat usable. However, it is not a concentration spell and has an eight hour duration. You and up to 10 willing creatures you can see within range assume a gaseous form for the duration. So this is pretty much the big brother of gaseous form. The difference, however, while in this form, a creature has a flying speed of 300 feet and has resistance to damage from non-magical weapons. The only actions a creature can take in this form are the dash action or to revert to its normal form. Reverting takes a minute, during which time a creature is incapacitated and can't move. Until the spell ends, a creature can revert back to cloud form, which also requires the one minute transformation. If a creature is in cloud form and flying when the spell ends, when the effect ends, they descend 60 feet per round for a minute until they land, which it does safely. If it can't land after a minute, it falls the remaining distance. So let me actually start with that last bit because that is an important distinction. So if you're over 600 feet, because it's 60 feet for a minute, so six times 60 times 10, 600. So if you're above 600 feet, you would fall the remainder, which is quite dangerous, but not as dangerous as it should be. Uh, quick Remy rant tangent. I have issue with fall damage in D&D. It is way, way too low because fall damage is 1d6 per 10 feet up to a maximum of 20d6. So 20d6 is the most damage that you can take from falling. So that means then that it is if every single die is a 6, 120 damage. There are quite a number of characters that can have a higher hit point total than that, which would mean then that there are a number of characters that could fall literally from space, but because terminal velocity is 20d6, would then just be able to get back up and keep fighting. That is ridiculous. And that's not even getting into characters like a barbarian who could potentially you know, take half damage from raging or someone like a monk who has a trait specifically to reduce fall damage. So even a lower level monk has a decent shot of surviving fucking terminal velocity. And that's 120 damage maximum. So average damage would be more like 60. So 60 damage is pretty survivable even by a mid-level party. Like if you're level eight, you could probably, you could definitely survive that. Because even if you were to take, you know, 60 damage and you had 40 hit points, it would knock you unconscious, but it wouldn't kill you. So fall damage is stupidly survivable in D&D. I don't know exactly what the math would be to try to fix that. And for this one situation, I'm not even going to try because calculating the gravity of at, you know accurate fall damage is unfortunately just beyond my knowledge and ability. But it is something that I wish was looked into more. But I will simply accept the rules as written, but grumble about it. Uh, anyway, sorry, uh, that tangent aside, Windwalk, great spell. So if you are above that, you will fall, but probably be fine, because if you're in a group that can cast six level spells, you can probably have enough hit points to survive that remainder anyway. But the fact that it does have a 300 foot movement speed is amazing because, again, looking at the average of 30 feet movement speed, this is quite literally 10 times faster. So normally, if you use the travel rules for long distances, a party will walk. 
24 miles a day at normal pace. 10 times that would mean that if this is cast on the party, you would be able to just fly in one day 240 miles. However, it gets better slash worse. That's at the normal travel pace. If you use a fast pace for overland travel, then it becomes 300 miles traveled in one day by one casting of one sixth level spell for up to 11 total creatures. That is one of those effects that if you have a high enough magic world for that to be not even common, but just existent in any number, that could be a world-changing spell. The ability when... uh, Sorry, also another tangent. Speed. Going that fast, let alone going that far, nothing in the game is that fast. Period. Nothing. If you are traveling... Well, okay, let me rephrase. There are some ridiculously broken builds that can get to ridiculous speeds, but creature-wise, most creatures will not have anywhere near that. The closest one that I'm aware of, at least, would be something called a quickling, which has a run speed of 120 feet, so that could potentially dash up to 240, but still, you're flying, and faster, so not your problem. It does also say that you can dash as an action. This is where the rules actually get a little bit fuzzy, because technically speaking, you are usually able to dash in combat to get the speed boost, and it works by you know doubling your speed for the turn, or getting an increase of your movement speed for the turn. However, the only real mention of dashing out of combat is in the chase rules, of the Dungeon Master's Guide, where it mentions that you can use the dash action a number of times equal to three plus constitution modifier, or they need to start making constitution saving throws or get exhausted, or a level of exhaustion, excuse me. However, it is only a DC 10 check, and unlike a lot of other checks, it is always a DC 10 constitution check. It does not ever increase. So if you kind of just roll the dice on it, you could decide to dash every single turn infinitely if you have a character that has a plus nine constitution, or sorry, it's a constitution check, not a constitution saving throw, come to think of it. So even if you had a 20 con, you'd still only have a plus five. So you could try to do it every turn, but eventually you'd probably start getting that exhaustion. But in theory, let's say that you had some combination of powers and abilities and magic items and such to just be able to auto-succeed on that check. Or if you're playing in an epic-level campaign where you have a 30 constitution score, which would give you a plus 10 and therefore auto-succeed every time. Well, technically, if you had a 28, but anyway, that would be good enough. Doing it infinitely would then mean such creatures would be able to move 600 feet and travel 600 miles. And that's not even getting into if you've got a rogue with these stats who can then dash as a bonus action, which would then make it 900. It just gets ridiculous. Uh, Or to get even crazier, speaking of just the crazy builds that I mentioned, uh, there is the spell Haste, which just doubles your movement speed. And technically speaking, as long as you had... That one is a concentration spell, but at least for that amount of time, you'd technically be moving at double speed yet again. So it's possible to go 
stupidly fast. But even the absolute basic version, if you assume that your characters can't do the, you know, every turn dashing, you're still able to move 300 miles in a day, which is absolutely incredible in a D&D world. So um, I have already gone on quite a lot of ranting, so I'm going to try to go a bit faster through the magic item side of things. But in short, even besides all of the various spells that exist, there are a lot of magic items too to grant the ability to fly. So I'm curious, actually, before I do start listing them, what are the ones that you're aware of, Nathan? Um, None. <laughs> Okay. Oh yes, yes, I do remember one. I do remember one. Um, mm -hmm. the, the, this, if I remember correctly, there's one that's basically the magic carpet. Correct! There is indeed a magic carpet as one of the items of Dungeons & Dragons. What is kind of odd, just D&D 5th edition tries really hard to stick to a pattern in how they name things, like blank of blank. So instead of just being flying carpet, it is a carpet of flying, which I find to be somewhat silly, but your mileage may vary. What is kind of neat, however, about the flying carpet in particular is that there are four different ones. Any carpet of flying, I keep wanting to say flying carpet just because it's silly. Anyway, every, every carpet of flying is a very rare magic item, which means they are going to be a very expensive, just not super available thing in the world. However, the variances of them are also quite interesting because all of them offer a scale, basically, between how big is the carpet and how much it can carry for being so big versus how fast you can go. So there are four sizes of flying carpets. There's a small one that's just three feet by five feet, but is able to go 80 feet. But then on the opposite side, you have a much larger six foot by nine foot, but that only goes 30 feet. What is also kind of interesting about it is that it moves according to your spoken directions as long as you're within 30 feet of it. So you don't even have to be on the thing to control it, which is kind of neat. Also, it does not require attunement. You just can use it, which is also neat. So whether you have just the larger one to just carry the entire party, or if you do have the smaller one to just move really fucking fast because 80 feet is one of the highest available flying speeds just where you can actually do things. Because as great as that last spell Windwalk is, Windwalk prevents you from actually doing stuff, while a carpet of flying still gives you your full action economy. So if you are on a carpet of flying in combat, and if you did have that small one, like, let's just stick to the rogue example. You can just move 80 feet, 80 feet of movement, plus 80 feet by using dash as your bonus action, because rogue, would give you 160 feet to potentially get into cover, hide, pop out of cover, move somewhere else to hide on your next turn. So one of the come on guys that comes up a lot for rogues is just that you know they use the hide action to hide somewhere obvious and then immediately attack and you know generally dms are technically more generous than the rules intend to allow that to grant the advantage on the attack allow sneak attack all that good stuff but moving and flying that quickly actually kind of works 
So that actually would make sense for the rogue. And again, just having a magic item, if you have the big one, to just carry the party. Because again, so much of the game is groundbound. So if you even did have the large, slow flight, it still lets you avoid a fuck ton of the things on the ground. Like, then you'd only be in danger of, like, well, depending on how high you're flying, too, potentially nothing. Well, except for other flying things. But there's not a lot of just three-dimensional planning a lot in D&D. Anyway, besides the carpet of flying, the other most iconic magic item is, of course, the broom of flying. Just straight out of Wizard of Oz and just all of the various stories about witches forever. The flying broom, which is amazing, actually, in D&D, because the broom of flying is only an uncommon magic item that does not require attunement. That is nuts, because you can fly on it with a 50-foot flying speed. So again, much faster than most characters are able to walk, just as fast as a wolf is able to run. But you're flying, so I, I don't know why I like you, wolf as the example. I think it's just the default 50-foot movement speed in my brain. Anyway, uh, there is one important detail, though, a limit, which is it can carry up to 400 pounds, but if it's carrying over 200 pounds, you can only fly 30 feet, so equal to the normal movement speed. So that is a pretty interesting limitation, because that means that basically most characters with a backpack full of gear would tech would almost certainly be over that 200 pound limit, you know, unless you're playing, you know, a gnome or halfling type character. But more often than not, you'll probably push that weight limit and get slowed to that 30 foot limit. Again, unless, of course, you have a bag of holding, which we've talked about at length in that episode. But what is also kind of neat about the broom, you can send the broom to travel alone to a destination within a mile of you if you speak the command word. Name the location and are familiar with that place. The broom comes back to you when you speak another command word, as long as the broom is still within a mile. So that gives the explanation for, well, okay, if you're not on the broom, then why is it that that might just, where is it while you're in combat? Because a broom, not exactly the most uh, nimble object to just, you know, have on your back if you're getting in a fight. So this way, you can simply say that when you're about to get in combat and not planning to fly, then you can just have the broom just hover a half a mile up, or just like, hide, you know, along that branch over there. Because if you can see it, you're familiar with the place. It's just such a good item that it's another one that I think ought to be used more in games. Because if you're playing in a higher magic world that has magic items available, then the entire party should get brooms of flying as soon as they can afford it, just based on their other priorities, of course. Like, if you want to get magic weapons first, that makes sense. Like, if you want to get a bag holding first, that very much makes sense. But I, I don't know that I've ever actually played in a party that just did make the choice to just get brooms of flying, which is just kind of odd because it's so goddamn useful. Anyway, there are a number of other magic items, too, that have more limited types of flying. There is a winged boots that exist that's also uncommon, but requires attunement for that one, which again, it's just boots. So then you don't have to have a thing, like have an item to hold rather. It's just, it makes you fly. And what those will give you a limited amount of flight of up to four hours and that requires hours of recharging. So more limited. 
there are honestly there's a lot of other items but the flying carpet and the flying broom are the most iconic ones for good reason um honorable mention though there are also some very interesting items specifically for bards bards have i don't i want to say like eight or so items specifically that only a bard can attune to so just for the example i'll give the dust loot <laughs> d-o-s-s space l-u-t-e so string an instrument that a bard can usually can be proficient in potentially but these instruments grant the ability to cast a bunch of spells so they will allow each spell to be cast once per day and it is an uncommon magic item that does require a bard to attune however Magic items that allow a spell to be cast are not actually that common. And this item, or any of these items really, will allow a lot of spells. So the Dos Loot grants Levitate and Fly as potential options with this item. And an item does not have any limitation of the character knowing how to cast the spell because it's cast by the item. So you can have a first or second level party get really lucky and find one of these items or get their hands on one somehow, and then you have the ability to cast fly once a day. And that could be a potentially fun thing to just see. What would a low-level party do if once a day they did get access to some incredibly useful spell like fly with such an item. In summary, flight has always been a dream of humanity. And in a 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons world, there are a myriad of opportunities to grant player characters and creatures and anything really the ability to do so. And dungeon masters and players alike should think more in three-dimensional spaces to take advantage of magical flight. Thanks for listening to this episode of Riffs and Rules. Please leave us a review and give us five stars on iTunes. Also, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash riffwakepodcast. Here stars those a dollar and even that much really helps us out. Supporters get benefits such as behind-the-scenes content, early access to episodes, access to the Patreon Discord where we will chat with the cast, and even a shout-out on the show. Find us on social media on Twitter at Riffwick Podcast, on Facebook as Riffwick, and on Reddit on the subreddit r slash Riffwick Podcast. And now send us an email, riffsandrules at gmail.com. That's riffs, A-N-D, rules at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye! Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.